during and especially after the period of the early church, there became a there was a movement rather that began to grow even among the early church fathers, and it was called monasticism. Monasticism. There's your word for the week that you've learned. Uh, you can use it and impress others with it. Monasticism is a life or lifestyle that is the intentional separation of oneself from the world in order to please God and to fight sin. Egypt was the country in which the monastic movement began and its particular practice grew in popularity. Antonius was one of the earliest monastics He thought that he could deal with sin in his soul by removing himself from the temptations around him. As the church began to grow and the Roman Empire began to become more and more influenced by Christianity and paganism seemed to be tamped down a bit, monasticism shrunk in its movement. But... As this movement did continue to grow in certain sectors of the Roman Empire, uh, there they created what is known as monasteries where these men and women would go to live a hermit's life in order to isolate themselves and to please God. One of the most famous of these early monks was a man named Simeon. He was part of a group called the Stylites. Um, after the Greek word stylus, which means pillar. Uh, Simeon took his ascetic life to the extreme. He, he built himself a tower, uh, a pillar, a stylos, uh, that was a few feet tall, about six feet or so, and he climbed atop of it and sat there and lived on top of this pillar, thinking to separate himself in this way. Well, as time would go on, for some 30 years, Mr. Simeon lived atop a 60-foot tower, or rather a 30-foot tower for 60 years, where he would live out his life in separation and isolation from the world around them. The problem with these early individuals, and they in no stretch were Christians, um, was that they dealt with the, the lust of the flesh, by isolating themselves from the world. They thought that they could cleanse themselves uh, through isolation. And of course, these early monasteries were and often helpful. They gave rise to orders of monks and, and to nuns and particularly gave rise to, in the Middle Ages to corruption. And there were certain orders within these monasteries like the Franciscans who did great things for civilization, but of course they also were a place of rampant perversion to which the reformers saw their end. Their hope was to see each of them closed. But as we consider this early practice, I share this with you because I believe that as Christians we often take the same approach here in the 21st century. Do you think That you please God by separating yourself from the world like these early monks. Do you think that by keeping yourself morally clean, 
That somehow you are pleasing God and therefore acceptable to Him. You're a good person. You've never killed anyone. You've never stolen from anyone. You are a good citizen. You try to help your neighbor if they're in need. You, you will go across the street to help someone in need. You will do whatever it is. Your reputation in this community is that of one of an upstanding person. You all, you are for all explanation and a good person. Friend, is that your confidence if you were to turn up into heaven today? That you pleased God by living a good life? How do we please God? Do you seek to clean yourself up and make your life presentable to God? Friend, if you were to stand before God today, what would be your ticket that would allow you to enter into glory? Would it be your goodness or the goodness of another, the righteousness of Jesus? This is what we want to think about today. We want to think about this very difficult and hard reality that one day we will die. And I know that you've spent your entire life convincing yourself that you will never die. I know that you've woke up this morning and you saw the, the wrinkles and you saw and you felt, but you convinced yourself that you will live forever. But the reality is, and this is a 100% morality rate here in, a, in this world, everyone dies. And I know we often don't want to think about that. We just want to push it out of our minds. But the reality is that one day we will stand before Jesus. And the question for us this morning is, are we ready? Are we ready? Jesus has been traveling with his disciples along a, raw, a long and difficult path to Jerusalem. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he will be executed as a prisoner of the state for crimes he did not commit. He will die the atoning death that his Father has sent him upon. And throughout their journey, the cross looms large over every text that we come. And last week we left off with Jesus encouraging his disciples not to grow weary in the division that his ministry creates. Even in the Olivet Discourse, we heard Jesus warning His disciples in Mark 13 that division and suffering and tribulation awaits every Christian on their journey to the celestial city. They should expect trouble, Jesus said, as they seek to follow Him. And this then naturally leads to our story this morning as Jesus turned his focus from his disciples and to the crowds who had been listening in on that conversation. The story leads us to consider the impending judgment of God upon those who reject Jesus as the Christ. I've said all throughout this study, and particularly remind you of this truth this morning, there is no neutrality in your relationship to God. There is no neutrality. There is no middle way. There are only two ways to live. You either live your life in submission to God, 
or you live in rebellion against God. And as a lot, humanity has chosen by sending our representative Adam before us to represent us as a human race, decidedly chose to rebel against God. And so, everyone who is a descendant of Adam, and if you wonder this morning if you are or not a descendant of Adam, you are, okay, I know you can think about that later, but you are a descendant of Adam, we're all related in here, Um, we all came from the same parents, and those parents decided to rebel, and they've infected us with rebelliousness, what we call sin. Every one of us will then stand before Jesus in judgment unless there is a remedy, and that's what we want to think about this morning. So I invite you to look to Luke chapter 12. Turn to Luke chapter 12. It's found on page 872 in the Pew Bibles, provided there for you. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to take that, read it. It is our gift to you. We have plenty more to replace. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 54. Luke chapter 12, verse 54. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison? I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. There were some some president at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 of whom the the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up this ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, 
There are six days in which to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Friend, this is one unit illustrated by the bookend the way that Luke has organized this material with the word hypocrite. Hypocrite. He began by addressing the crowd as hypocrites, and then the religious leaders as hypocrites, and then rounded out the material by pointing to this kingdom that is growing mysteriously and miraculously. The point of the text is that judgment is coming to those who reject Jesus as Savior and King. Judgment is coming to those who reject Jesus as Savior and King. But to those who do repent and believe salvation has dawned in Jesus Christ. Our passage naturally divides into two parts this morning. And the purpose of our time is, is to really, for us to receive salvation that Jesus freely offers here, and thus, by receiving salvation, avoid the judgment of God that we all deserve. Friend, the, the point that Jesus is driving at is that we are in the end times, that judgment has come. And therefore, we must repent or face the final judgment. Judgment has already begun to break in upon human history. It has since Genesis 3. The world is dying. The universe and cosmos is under condemnation. And one day, there will be the final nail in the coffin when Jesus comes again and fully and finally destroys this universe and ushers in a new kingdom, a new world. If you take notes this morning, we're going to consider two main points. Number one, we deserve judgment for our sin. We deserve judgment for our sin. This we see in verses 54 through chapter 13, verse 9. We deserve judgment, but, there's a big but in our story, we receive salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. We receive salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. And this is illustrated in Jesus' conversation there with the woman on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath rest has begun. 
Where judgment has entered in, so has salvation. And both will continue until Christ returns to culminate all things. So number one, we rightly deserve judgment for our sin. We rightly deserve judgment. Jesus here is laying a case for our own judgment. And we learn from His teaching four things about judgment. We learn here from Jesus that judgment is of God. That it is from God and that it is evident for all to see. That if we would just have our eyes opened a bit to the world in which we live, we can already see judgment breaking into human history. It is, if you will, a foretaste of what eternal judgment awaits those who reject Jesus. That the judgment of God is not only evident, it is viewable, it is knowable. Secondly, we see that judgment of God is eternal. It is not temporal. It is eternal. And unless you and I reconcile this reality, we will face eternal punishment. Thirdly, we'll see here this morning that judgment of God is just. Do you know that God is a just God, which means you get exactly what you deserve? You and I get what we rightly deserve. And then lastly, we'll see there that judgment of God is impending. It is near. It is, far, it is not far off. It is right around the corner. Well, let's look here, verses 54 through 56. We learn here that judgment is evident. Judgment is evident. Now, Jesus here calls them hypocrites, uh, not in a customary way that we consider hypocrisy. Hi- hypocrisy is generally saying one thing and doing another thing. That's generally, what Jesus is exposing here is that they know what's right, but they don't apply the same logic to every situation. He he uses the illustration of meteorological uh, observation. You and I can observe today, it looks and appears to be a sunny day. There's no cloud in the sky, so we wouldn't expect rain uh, immediately, though it might rain later in the day. For these Jews, they knew that when there was a cloud in the sky or or when they saw the winds begin to shift, that things were going to happen. There was evidence in their life. And Jesus is reminding them that He has provided sufficient data for them to consider and ultimately come to a decision on Him. You remember last week, uh, the... The Jews were seeking a sign. They wanted another sign. Jesus, just give me another sign. And I've heard well-meaning people in the 21st century say the same. Well, if I could have just seen more, if I could have just been there, if I could just witness it, then I would believe. Friend, no, you would not. There were people that witnessed Jesus feeding over 15,000 people miraculously, and they still did not believe. There were people who witnessed a dead man coming out of a tomb and they still did not believe. The problem wasn't their eyesight, it was their heart. And Jesus here is reminding them that because of their hardness of heart, they did not and were not able to see and believe. But it was not because God was unfair in revealing the evidence. 
He had provided sufficient evidence to them that today was the day that they needed to repent. And friend, as you consider around you the brokenness of this world, the sickness and the disease and the evil that abounds, this is a sign to all of us that judgment is coming. That judgment is coming. This world is broken. It's not getting better. We are not optimistic about this world or this country or this society. No, things are getting worse, not better. This is not to be a pessimist, but rather a realist. Even with medical marvels and advancements in science and technology, it has not solved the main problem, and that is human wickedness. In fact, one could argue that technology and science has only fueled human wickedness to match our own perversions. Now we can transform medically our bodies to be what gender we want it to be. We can transform and change so many things. Once the sin that was so elusive to us is now as as accessible as the nearest iPhone. It is a reminder, even with all of these wonderful advancements, comes the main problem, which is human wickedness. Jesus goes on then to tell these individuals a strange account, doesn't it? And Jesus' point there in verses 57 through 59 is to use their logic on themselves. Jesus says, listen, if someone has something against you, in other words, if, if, if one of your neighbors was going to sue you uh, because you didn't pay a bill or because you damaged some property and they began to come after you legally, you would come to terms with them quickly. You, you wouldn't want to go to court and face all the court fees and all the judgments that might be rendered by a judge. You would probably try to settle out of court, right? You would want to deal with it out of court lest it become a permanent record for all to see. And Jesus says, look, look, you naturally do this in your everyday life. You, you don't want to face judgment. None of us want to, want to go to jail, We don't wake up in the morning and say, gee, I wonder what I could do today to get arrested and be incarcerated. And Jesus says, well, apply that desire in you in in light of, in relationship to God. If you don't want to be consigned in hell eternally, then doesn't it reason that you deal with your relationship with God today and not wait for tomorrow? This is why the Apostle Paul would write to the church in Corinth, today is the day of salvation. We ought never to put off. Friend, you are not guaranteed this afternoon. You could leave here, drive down 27, and die on the way. That is not to be morbid, but to be real. We are not guaranteed any minute, any second of the day. Thus, we, we ought not to push off 
our spiritual relationship with the eternal God. Jesus here paints a picture. You will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Friend, here's the reality the Bible teaches that one sin against an infinite God demands an infinite punishment. You name your sin. You pick it. I don't care what it is. Big or small, whatever it is. One act, one single act of rebellion against God demands an infinite punishment because you offended an infinite God. You see, we'll never get out of hell unless we have a remedy, unless there's some way of escape. Jesus, in other words, is reminding what He taught us weeks earlier. That we ought to be afraid, not of the one who could kill our body, but the one who has power to kill us and throw us into hell. Jesus said that it would make sense to seek reconciliation with the eternal God before we face an eternal punishment. Jesus is warning His disciples and the crowds, unless they repent and believe, they too will face judgment. This then leads here to the third point, that judgment is just. Everyone gets what they deserve. Now, uh, the the crowds, uh, like they often did, tried to to find some excuse. Rather than dealing with their sin, they, they tried to find a remedy. And so they gave two examples to Jesus, one of the Galileans who had been murdered by Pilate and another group of Jews that had a part of the wall, the the Tower of Siloam, part of the, the, the perimeter of the Temple Mount, fell over and killed a bunch of people. And essentially what they're doing is a kind of situation ethics. They're saying, okay, Did that happen to them because they did something wrong? In a 21st century, is this some divine or cosmic karma? You know, they did something bad, so something bad happened to them. And Jesus says, no friend, karma is not real. Karma is not true. Um, That is not a reality. Uh, So if you think that this morning, Jesus is kind of debunking uh, that false Hindu theology of karma. And saying, no, 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 it wasn't because something happened to them. Uh, you know, in other words, it, our sin isn't the reason why bad things happen to us. Have you ever noticed that when something bad happens, what do we immediately do? We ask the question, why? It's natural to us all, isn't it? Perhaps something's happened to you this week. And the, immediately your mind goes to ask, Why? Why did this particular disaster happen? You know why you do that? Have you ever thought about why you do that? Why that's your natural response? What you're doing is it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism of defense. It's a defense mechanism. What you're doing, why you ask that question why, is so that you can come to the conclusion, well, that would never happen to me. If you could answer the question why, well, they got in that car accident out there and they died because they made the wrong turn. I'll never do that. I always pay attention when I'm turning. You see? Well, that would never happen to me because I I always lock my my doors. That would never happen to me. 
We, we try to understand why in order to, to form a self-soothing comfort of ourselves. It, it soothes us. We draw comfort from knowing that, that, that we are better than others. That that would never have, that tower fell on those people because they had done something wrong. And it was, a, it was a measure of God's judgment because they had done something wrong. They got in that car accident because they did something wrong. Jesus says, no, friend. You've, you've drawn the wrong correlation. Bad things happen to good people not because they did something bad, but because they live in a fallen world. And, and we are told in the Bible that all of this chaos, death and disease and evil, is allowed by God under His sovereign care as a measure of judgment against humanity. If you want to think more about that, a, a good lesson in reading Romans chapter 1 and 2. Uh, I just commend those two chapters. Paul will help you think through the wickedness that is in this world, the brokenness of this world, as, as God giving us over to those things. It is a measure of judgment that awaits. That's why Jesus says, but unless you repent, this will happen to you also. In other words, we, we don't need to go at the why. We, we don't need to concern ourselves with why bad things happen. We, we know why bad things happen, because we live in a fallen world. There it is. We need to ask the other question, am I ready for bad things to happen to me? Am I ready to meet Jesus? Because if I'm not ready to meet Jesus, then it is going to be a a tragic sadness. And, And so Jesus here is saying, don't worry about the why, worry about your heart. Repent, he says. Repent, he says. Mike McKinley is helpful here. He says, when we see suffering in our lives or in the world around us, we need to resist the urge to draw rapid and unfound conclusion about God's purpose in sending it. In other words, what what McKinley is driving at is our effort needs not into explaining God's purposes, so Christian, avoid that temptation. If people come to you and like, well, why did this happen? Can you help me understand? No, no, avoid that, answering that question. That, that alone, just say, I don't know, God, God will answer that question for you. That, that's a God question. And you just hold that question until you see him, and then you ask that question. I don't know the answer to it. Avoid trying to answer that question. Because you and I are not in the position to answer that question, except for this. God is in control. That's, that, that would be my only answer. God knows, God's in control, and you can ask him one day. But our energy and our effort, Jesus says, ought to be put in repentance. Repentance is needed, Jesus says, because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is a continual, ongoing turning from sin and to Christ. It is not a one-time activity. It is not something you did when you were 11 years old and it was followed by baptism. Repentance is an ongoing, everyday activity. John Owen describes it as the killing of sin. He says this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's repentance. Repentance is the daily dying to self and living in Christ. 
A putting off of sin, the Apostle Paul says, and the putting on of righteousness. And Christian, this is a daily activity that you and I ought to be involved in because without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. You cannot have Jesus as a Savior and not make Him a Lord. The Lordship of Christ is where repentance occurs as you submit freely and willingly to His plan and purpose. This naturally leads to the picture of impending judgment that we see here that Jesus goes. He tells a parable of a fig tree. It's a quite interesting parable, isn't it? It's a story of a tree that maybe many of you could experience and have, uh, yeah, I understand when trees don't bear fruit. That's quite annoying because your pocketbook is, is connected to whether or not a tree bears fruit. And this uh, particular farmer here says, all right, hold on, don't just go chopping this tree down. Let me go, let me cultivate it, let me fertilize it, and then we'll give it one more year. But the whole story is tinged with the, this reality that judgment is coming. This tree is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And one of the fascinating things that happens in Jesus' ministry is that the day before he dies, he curses a fig tree as an emblematic picture of the impending judgment that is about to be laid upon him. Tragedy ought to cause us to consider and ponder, am I ready to meet Jesus if this was to happen to me? The question I hope that your mind is, is unsettled with this morning is, am I ready to meet Jesus? Friend, the reality that Jesus is teaching here is that judgment is coming. There is no way around it. There is no sick day that you can call in. You cannot be absent from that day. We are told that all of humanity will stand before Jesus in judgment. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Every one of us, without excuse, without exception, will stand in judgment. The question for us this morning is what will be the remedy in that day? Because we know that we rightly deserve judgment. We know that we have sinned and offended God. And therefore, we are guilty. You do realize that, friend, that you are guilty. That I am guilty. I know that you did that sin in, in, in the privacy of your own secret heart. and No one saw it. But the Bible teaches us that our God is all-knowing and all-seeing. And one day, He will blast on an overhead a giant screen, the biggest TV screen you've ever seen in your life, and you will stand before Him, and He will play like a highlights reel of every time you've rebelled against Him, secretly, privately, or in public. And the accuser will be there, his name is Satan, and he will accuse you, and he will say to you, what have you done? You've offended the one true and living God. Look at you. Now you get to spend eternity with me, my friend. Unless you have an advocate like this woman had on that Sabbath day. An advocate who will stand and say, you fool, I died 
the death he deserved. His punishment is no more. The penalty has been paid in full. I died and I was raised again. The Father accepted my death for his punishment. Yes, he is guilty, but no longer because I was punished in his place and I was vindicated because I rose three days later and I am standing before you today to say, get out of here, Satan. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, this is the picture, friend, that we see in this woman being healed on the Sabbath day. That we receive salvation through Christ. There is a reason why Jesus did it on a Sabbath day. It wasn't because he was busy the day before or didn't have anything going on the day after. He was proving and demonstrating, not that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, that was another lesson, but that he was the very embodiment of all that the Sabbath pointed towards. The Sabbath was the day of rest and renewal and restoration of all that was broken and all that was, 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 was difficult. Let me paint the picture very quickly and, and we'll move forward. When God created this world, He created it good and perfect and right. And He rested. It was good. But man rebelled and sinned. And He cursed the ground. He cursed the earth. Such that man, now when we go into the field and work, there's thorns and thistles, there's difficulty. We plant crops and they die. And God instituted in the life of Israel a day of rest from all their labors, all their toils, all their difficulty, a, a, a place of isolation from the brokenness of the world around them where they did not have to labor for food that perished. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am the one who is going to finally and fully restore this world just like that Sabbath that was repeated week after week and year after year. I am the one who is to deliver people from their sin. And by healing this woman on the Sabbath, he was declaring he was the one that would set the people right with God. He's the one that can bring healing. These religious leaders cared more about beasts of burden, ox and donkeys, than they did about a daughter of Abraham. And friend, I know this sermon has been heavy on judgment, but the reality is, is that Jesus loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so don't leave here with this sort of overwhelming burden of judgment, but rather take it to the cross where Jesus will lift that burden and take it upon Himself. This is what He did for this woman and what He'll do for you. This woman's soul was more important than animals. And a greater concern to Jesus is where your soul will eternally dwell than what you're having for lunch this afternoon. Lastly, we see that Jesus, in ushering in salvation, ushers in a kingdom in which we dwell. Jesus illustrates this, this kingdom of God that is ushered in through His coming in two parables. First, of a mustard seed. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? They're so stinking tiny. They're itty-bitty black seeds. You can hardly see it. If a little wind blows, it'll blow away. What's the point? 
something so small and seemingly insignificant grows into something great, a tree that that birds of the air come and nest in. Something small becomes something great. And we see that then in the second parable. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of yeast, if you've ever held it, just a small amount of yeast, a tablespoon, a teaspoon, I mean so small, insignificant, little granules, tiny little things, work their way through the whole. In other words, the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Friend, this is a glorious encouragement to us. And as Christians, we feel so small, don't we? There's this world of power out there, and, 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 and we feel so small and insignificant. We feel as if we're pushing against a brick wall, like we're never able going to break into the darkness around us. But Jesus here is saying, friend, once I've come, my kingdom is small, but it will grow into a vast and, and glorious kingdom. And once my kingdom starts, it cannot be stopped. Friend, the only way you'll survive Judgment Day is by trusting the one who has faced that day for you on the cross of Calvary. Let me encourage you this morning, if you want to know how to follow Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, just turn to anyone that you're sitting around, perhaps whoever you came with this morning, and ask them, how do I follow Jesus? I want you to leave with this question in your mind. Are you ready to meet your Creator? Friend, judgment day is coming to those who reject Jesus as both Savior and King. But to those who do repent, to you, brother, to you, sister, who have repented and believed, friend, yours is the kingdom. You are a part of something greater that this world will never be able to touch, and no amount of evil will be able to stop it. I leave you with this quote from J.C. Ryle, the great Bishop of London. If we have already repented in time past, let us go on repenting to the end of our lives. There will always be sins to confess and infirmities to deplore, so long as we are in the body. Let us repent more deeply and humbly ourselves more thoroughly every year. Let every returning birthday find us hating sin more and loving Christ more. He was a wise old man who said, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. Friend, let that be our testimony. Let us keep on repenting, keep on believing, until that day draw near and Jesus calls us home. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would be made glorious in our life through our repentance and faith. Aid us, we pray, for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.